Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Exodus. This comes from uh, Exodus 15. This is the song of Miriam. When the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his chariot drivers went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. And then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider, he is thrown into the sea. And now if you'll stand, we stand when we read from the gospel. This is uh, from Luke 1, Mary's Magnificat. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. This is the gospel of the Lord. You guys may go ahead and take a seat. I just wanted to let you know if you are visiting that our Pastor Jordan is taking a time of sabbatical of respite during this Advent season just to rest and refill. Um, but today we have Megan Ramsey here to speak to us. Come on up, Megan. Yes. Um, Megan is in seminary and is interning with us on staff this year, and she has been such a gift to us um, and to our community, and it has been such a joy to watch Megan lean in to the gifts that God has given her, and she pours her heart into what she is creating to share with us in, on Sunday mornings. And I am so thankful for Megan. And you guys, I was at the 9 o'clock, and you are in for a treat this morning. So thank you, Megan, for being with <laughs> thank us. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you all so much. Um, it has been such a gift getting to know you all and getting to become a part of this community. So thank you. It's just, again, a blessing. So thank you. 
Um, so over the past few months, we have been talking about God's big story, and we have leaned on the framework of the New Testament theologian N.T. Wright, and he has divided this big story up into five different acts. And today we will continue talking about um, God's big story and focusing on Act 3, which is the promise of God to make all things right. Last time we gathered here together at Kalen, John beautifully reminded us of the call to remember God's faithfulness, both in the big story of God and also our own little stories that are playing out every single day of our lives. And today what I'm going to be talking about is the song that's often playing in God's big story. A few weeks ago, Jordan led us through the Exodus account, and today we're going to enter back into this story, but we're going to approach it from a different angle. We're going to listen for the song of liberation that's playing in the background. In his sermon from a few weeks ago, which thank you, Jordan, for sitting right here in front of me. <laughs> no, no pressure, guys. <laughs> uh, anyways, um, in his sermon that he was talking about three weeks ago, Jordan alluded to this reality that I stand in the middle between two very different worlds right now. And that's the world of the city, a city that has pretty much raised me as an adult. It's also where I'm at school at, at Candler and then the world of the suburbs. And sometimes, lots of times, these feel like two very different worlds. Something else to note about the context of the school of where I'm in seminary at is about 50% of the student population is black. It's also an ecumenical school, which just means it's a big word. That it, it's a type of school that operates outside the bounds of one singular denominational lens. And prior to applying to Candler, a lot of folks told me, don't go there. It's way too progressive. But as a woman, you know, who felt called here, I had two options on the table. I could go to a more conservative environment, a school that believed that what scripture says is that women have no business being up here. Or I could go to a more progressive place, a place where it is believed that all are called that all have access should they want it. And so that's where I went. <laughs> so one other thing that I just want to share with y'all before we get going this morning is that one of my deepest loves is the church. I believe in her. I want to give a lot of my life's work to her. But what I have learned to become unafraid of doing over the course of these past three years is critiquing her. Because y'all, she has a shadow side. Yeah. Just as I have a shadow side. And so what I hope that you hear this morning is a rhythm. A rhythm of critique. And also a rhythm of cherishment. Because I hold both of these postures tenderly and delicately. So in order to listen for this song of liberation, we first need to talk about what's liberation theology. And what liberation theology is, is it's just a lens, it's a perspective, a framework for understanding how the Bible is interpreted. And for me personally, this was a lens that I did not know about until I went to seminary. Having grown up in the South, in a fundamentalist, kind of ultra-far-right-leaning um, environment, I was taught and trained to read the Bible through one lens only, and that was the lens of personal salvation. And so we focused a lot on um, heaven, and we focused a lot on hell, and we talked very little about the here and now of life. And I'm really grateful for this framework. 
it has shaped and formed, and it, I wouldn't be here today without it. So please know that. But if we're going to talk about liberation theology, what you need to kind of know to compare and contrast is it is all about freedom. It is about freedom from an empire. And what I mean by empire, to lean on the language of the Exodus story, is it is a system of pharaoh-like power that oppresses, marginalizes, exploits, and silences. Empire, y'all. It is a way of thinking, a way of being. It is not necessarily a person, so please remember that. Rather, it's something you can kind of taste or smell, an invisible spirit-like force that creates a certain kind of thinking around who does and who does not hold power. Empire is consciousness. It shapes how we think and how we act. It is a powerful force we must be mindful of. And liberation theology is a critique of the empire. Within the Exodus account, the framework of liberation is a critique of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's empire. It is what we see in the unfolding of the Exodus account as Moses leads the Israelites and enslaved people outside the system of Pharaoh's empire. And the Exodus account is one of the core scriptural frameworks for understanding freedom and liberation within marginalized communities. So some examples, feminist communities, womanist communities, LGBTQIA communities, poor and politically oppressed communities, and especially the black community. They open the Bible, they read the Exodus story, and they see themselves in this story. And they believe in the God that liberates communities from oppression, yep. from empire systems. So what I want to do is I want to take us back into the Exodus account, but focus specifically on Miriam, Moses' sister. And we're going to listen for this song of liberation. Miriam is the first woman ever named as a prophet in the Bible. Fun fact for y'all. She's often placed in the shadows compared to the story of Moses, but her presence and her leadership are vital in this account. And to our knowledge, we don't know that much about Miriam's background. But what I believe is she was a leader of her people long before her brother ever stepped onto the scene. And unlike her brother, she never reactively responded, taking justice into her own hands, murdering someone as Moses did. Instead, I believe the way she channeled her pain, channeled her rage, channeled her hope, was through creativity, was through song, was through worship. And so in response to seeing God in action on the Israelites' behalf in Exodus 15, Miriam witnesses the parting of that Red Sea. She sees her people being led through the impossible, and guess what her response is? It's worship. It's song. The text tells us she picks up that tambourine and she leads her people in a doxology, a call and response that is worshiping the liberating God that frees people from empires. The one who has heard their cries under the enslavement of a corrupt empire. And my imagination tells me this was not the first time that Miriam probably led this kind of worship. My imagination tells me that perhaps Miriam was always choosing to sing a different song. One that refused to lean on violence or hatred, or murder. Because I think Miriam knew what we know to be true, and that that is its song, that worship, it does something to us. 
It has the power to transcend those empire forces. Because song is also spirit, and the senses you cannot touch it, or point to it, or hold it in your hands. But you enter into it, and you come out realizing you just participated in something holy. Hope can come into one's life when there was none before. Freedom can come into one's bones when enslavement was one's only reality. Miriam knew this. Miriam knew the power of worship. One of the women I'm never going to forget during my time in seminary is one of my classmates, who for the sake of this conversation, I'm going to call Dr. Mary. Dr. Mary is this beautiful black woman, a force of love, a force of justice. Even over Zoom, she has that kind of presence that just radiates life. And if you live in Zoom land, you know that these humans are gifts to all of us. <laughs> The, last, or the class that I met Dr. Marianne was a class on the sociology and politics of black institutions in the United States, and I was one of four white people in a predominantly black community. The first day of class, Dr. Mary learns we're from the same hometown, and she extends this really warm welcome to me. She tells me that she, too, had left a fundamentalist background from the mountains of western North Carolina, and she made me feel like we had all these commonalities. But Dr. Mary was nearly in her 70s, and as a black woman living in the United States, I knew that she had witnessed things that I could never possibly imagine. For the rest of the semester, in that specific class, our conversations were charged, to say the least. It was in the middle of the pandemic. The racial uprisings were literally happening before our very eyes. And I would often go into class and realize that I needed to take off my shoes, because I was on holy ground. Because for the first time in my life, as a white woman, I had the privilege of getting to listen and learn and hear the unedited cries of a black community crying out in pain and rage about a system that had failed them. And then I would go back into these classes and I would be like, I don't want to be here. <laughs> it's way too much, too much pain, too much rage, too much brokenness over these systems, so much grief. Dr. Mary would often say we would have these breakout groups, and she'd kind of chuckle, and she'd say, oh, you young people. She'd say, y'all have so much energy. <laughs> She'd say, y'all have so much charge. Just want to get out there. Make systemic change happen. <laughs> and then she'd kind of take a breath and she'd say, but I've been a part of these systems for a really long time. Haven't seen all that much change happen. You know? I don't put much hope in these systems anymore. Dr. Mary, she was in seminary to get another master's degree. She had earned four distinguished sets of letters by her name. She had a set of letters by her name for each of the women in her life, her aunts, her mother, who had been denied access to this kind of education because the brokenness of a system. 
Dr. Mary, she began her PhD work in the early 1990s, and she was researching and focusing on how worship music and scripture can provide a certain kind of care to her patients. And when she started this work, what she was told is there's nothing here. This work doesn't matter. But what Dr. Mary knew is that worship and scripture carried her community for countless years. And as a professor of nursing, Dr. Mary encourages her students that when they encounter a patient who is in distress, consider playing worship in the background. See if anything changes in that room. She urges those in medical care to first ask a patient, do they have a verse or a worship song that has carried them and calmed their soul in times past? Because Dr. Mary knows that below all this lies a spirit a soul, and it must be attended to. Care is not just about finding a diagnosis or needing another prescription. Those are important things, but they are not the whole picture. And so the song Dr. Mary has chosen to sing with her life, it is one that is rooted in the gospel. It is one that is rooted in her faith, one that is rooted in looking at the failures of a system right in the eye and says, I will find another way. I will keep singing this song. And I will keep figuring out how to breathe life and love and compassion and healing back into a broken system. So I grew up with music in my blood. Um, my mom, she is an incredible pianist and a vocalist. And um, she led worship in a space that believed women had no business being here. You know, an empire, I think. And her voice was so loud. Ugh. As a kid, I often stood behind, like, beside her, and I was so embarrassed at how loud she was singing. I'm ashamed to, please forgive me. Um, <laughs> she had no fear in using her voice, you know? She had this big dream that she wanted to do something with her creative flame. And so right after high school, she applies to a school of music. She gets in. She decides she's going to run hard after this thing. And then shortly thereafter, she decides she's going to drop out in order to support my dad and his creative pursuits. And I can remember as a kid, she would sit down to that piano and she'd put her hands on those keys and she could play the kind of melody that would make your bones ache. I think it was her song of grief. My mom lived within an empire of a faith system that told her her only options for her life were to be a wife, to be a mother, the same empire system, it gave her no freedom, no imagination for what might it look like if she integrated her creative flame and pursued work that she loved. And this same empire system, what it told her, the gospel said, in reaction to all of the abuse and all of the affairs, was forgive and forget. And you can imagine what happened. All that silence. It eventually led to numbing. And the numbing eventually led to addiction. And all of a sudden, this new empire song is singing over her life. We know how to take your pain and turn it into a prophet. We know how to take your need for medicine and make it into a monopoly. And y'all, I can never touch it or point to it or hold it in my hands. But I realized that so much of my mom's life had, yes, been impacted by bad decisions that she had made. But also, y'all, 
empire systems that knew exactly how to oppress, marginalize, silence, exploit. Five years ago, I get this phone call telling me my mom had had a series of strokes. And um, the impact of, of, like, of the strokes, what was happening was that a rapid form of dementia was going on in her brain. We were told that the damage was permanent, she was placed in a locked facility, and that it was going to be a fast decline. And it became really clear, you know, that there was never going to be this redemption-like story that we had always ached for. And then the pandemic happened, and we assumed the situation was just going to get worse. She was forced to be alone in her room, as so many of y'all know, with loved ones in nursing care facilities. No one could come in. No one could go out. It was pretty much solitary confinement. But something wild started to happen in my mom during that time. She started to wake up, and she asked if we could get her old electric keyboard and get it back into her room. (laughs) And then she started doing what she does best singing really loud. (laughs) She started to worship again, you know? She started to play this song and sing a song of hope and liberation, proclaiming that this was not the end of her story. And my mom has continued to come back to life, thanks be to God. She now leads worship service at her nursing home facility, and she leads this group called Joyful Noise. (laughs) And they sing so loud. She teaches piano lessons to the elderly, but mostly she just sings a song of liberation, one that testifies to the residents that even if they may never get out, they're free. My mom has figured out how to birth freedom into a place literally bound by captivity. And she has created a new kind of consciousness, a new kind of song of the residents to sing, It's about hope and love and life. And the more that I have watched my mom's journey unfold, the more that I think about Dr. Mary, and I think about how these two women, who will never vote the same, or think the same, or believe the same, have tapped into something that transcends all those barriers. And I really believe that if Dr. Mary ever met my mom, I think what she sees is a kindred spirit. Because what these two women have chosen to do with their life is to critique an empire through the power of worship. And they figured out how to create freedom and new kinds of consciousness, new ways of thinking and being, and really broken systems. Y'all, this is what liberation theology and the Exodus account are about, you know? They are about leaving the framework of a broken system and allowing a liberating God to birth a new reality of freedom in and through you. And when I consider the prophet Miriam, along with the women I have spoken about today, all I think about is Jesus. I think about how in a couple weeks, we're going to celebrate the birth of a baby, born into a world crippled by the powers of a Roman empire. And I think about how Jesus refused to challenge power with power. He refused to sing the song of the empire. Instead, he went to parties. (laughs) He drank wine. (laughs) He broke bread. He got to know people. 
And he traveled around healing the sick, touching the untouchables, and proclaiming with every fiber of his being that the kingdom of God, it lives in all of us. Jesus' greatest critique was not the Roman Empire. It was how the empire had gotten into here, how it had gotten into people's faiths. And the way he chose to challenge this was through storytelling, through radical curiosity, often going around, touching the untouchables, healing the sick, and saying, you have heard it said, but I have come to tell you there's another way. You know? Hmm. Jesus chose to sing a song of liberation over the Roman centurion and also the Samaritan, the woman at the well. He sang it over Zacchaeus, the rich tax collector, and also the beggar, the blind Bartimaeus. Jesus' song was the same kind of song that the prophet Miriam was singing about, that my classmates sang about, and that my mom, I think, has learned to sing. And it is this same song Jesus' own mother, Mary, sings to us in the Gospel of Luke and what we know to be the Magnificat. Mary, a likely 12 to 14-year-old girl who is young, poor, marginalized, unmarried, and now pregnant, chooses to sing a song of God's liberation in the most vulnerable moment of her life. She sings of how God will bring down the spirit of the proud. She sings that God's going to uplift the lowly. Mary sings that to those who are hungry, God is going to feed. And to those who have been made powerless by an empire, God is going to restore. Because God is never on the side of the empire. This is Mary's song. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, um, who was a German pastor who was executed during the Nazi regime, recorded that Mary's Magnificat was the most passionate, the wildest. One might even say the most revolutionary hymn ever sung. And some countries, y'all, such as India, Guatemala, and Argentina, have literally banned the reading of the Magnificat to be read in public. Empires terrified of the power of a girl singing a song of liberation over her people. One of the greatest honors of my adult life has literally been able to get to listen and learn to folks who look and believe and sing nothing like I do. It broke my own pharaoh heart wide open. It made me tender. Tender to my own pain. Tender to the pain of a marginalized person's pain. And it made me realize how this same system had tried to take my own song. And it also made me realize how I had been participating in this system without even knowing what I was doing. So I am an absolutely horrible singer. So I'm not going to sing to you all this morning. I really wish I could. Um, but if I had lyrics to a song, I think they'd be something like this. Can you hear the sounds of the empire in your life? Has your heart grown cold to the cries of the oppressed? To the poor in spirit? 
Where has this empire tried to take your song? And where might you be being invited to sing life and love and liberation back into a broken system? One of my core convictions is that the task of the Christian life is to hear this song of the empire, to call it out, and then figure out how do we sing a different song back into this thing. As we close out our time together um, and prepare to come to this table, it feels fitting that we should worship. Our confession and assurance this morning is going to be the song Amazing Grace. And we're going to invite the kids uh, to come in and worship with us. So many of y'all are probably familiar with the story behind this song. It was written in the late 1700s by a white man named John Newton. And Newton was a captain of a slave ship. He was a white man participating in an empire system that sold black bodies for profit. He had blood on his hands. And the story goes that he has this near-death experience on a particular voyage. And so what he chooses to do is he makes this promise. If I get back to land, I promise I will become a Christian. So he gets back to land. He becomes a Christian, but nothing changes. It's only until a few years later where he gets sick and he's forced to quit this work that he leaves. And I think what starts to happen is in this back half of his life, he starts to wrestle and reflect and repent about the empire system that he had given his life to. And it is from this place of wrestling that we get these words. I was blind. Now I see. I was Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch even like me. In this song, it launched a movement for the abolition of the slave trade. And it was a song that Newton committed the back half of his life to singing. It was a song of repentance. A song that charged the world with speaking out against the powers of an empire. It is a song that led to a movement of liberation. So we're going to sing it this morning.